He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to episode five of Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will be your host. I want to give the rest of these Munson's a wide berth. Fellas, what's going on in your worlds today? How about you, Warren? Uh, you know, I wake up every single morning and I go into our bathroom and like Jessica Chastain, I write the number of the day that we're on in quarantine and I make a big deal about it. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Where are we at? Uh, shit. Uh, like 10, <laughs> 11. <laughs> Yeah. How how much longer until insanity kicks in? Uh, I'd say it was on like number six or seven. Yeah, I think we're okay. well past that day at this point. If I had hair, I'd start losing it. Rigby, how about you, man? What's going on in your world? Good. Trying to keep sane. Tomorrow will be two weeks since I started working from home and isolating myself in my studio apartment. So just, yeah, watching a lot of movies, a lot of TV in the middle of trying to get work done in the in the day. The work part's not really going so well, but the movie watching is. There's an upside to this craziness that would be it, that I'm getting to watch a lot of movies and TV that I was uh, lacking on before. Case, what about you, man? I'm learning that there's a uh, definite skill and art to background control when you're doing video meetings. I never thought in my 40s I would have to learn, but I'm learning it. We got a little bit of an assist from a friend from another podcast. Your buddy Dane sat down with me yesterday, helped me understand how to how to edit better. He's a good dude, and uh, I was real thankful for his assistance. We appreciate you, Dane. James? Yeah, things are good over here. So I've officially uh, postponed my wedding from the last podcast. It was mostly just giving people Facebook updates about how I might postpone it. And ever since we've actually postponed it, it feels like a huge burden off my shoulders, to be honest. Um, we pushed it back a year because no one seems to have a good timeline on when this is going. Things are good now. Now I'm just working from home and doing random yard work. I, th- I think at this point I'll probably end up completely redoing my house on the – I'll be like a master contractor or carpenter by the end of this quarantine because I'm running out of things to do around the house at this point. So, fellas, I am wearing my throwback Stephen Moya Detroit Tigers jersey. If you're keeping score at home, Stephen Moya uh, hasn't played for the Tigers in probably four years. I bought it at Lids about uh, three months ago because it was like $10. Um, that was also the day I bought uh, James a Yankees jersey with Aaron Judge, and I think that cost me like $10. No, I got it for free, if I remember. It was like buy two, get one free. And I remember I called James and said, do you want a Yankees jersey? And he went, I mean, yeah, but you don't have to do that. When you told me it was free, I was like, then yes, yes, I'll gladly take a, absolutely take one. So yeah, James got a free Aaron Judge jersey, real authentic. Uh, Lids is the shit. He's earned his pinstripes more than like half the guys on the team. Warren, I'm not in a safe space for you to do this right now. All right, so we are getting into what we're calling a Munson's Choice episode. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know that every two weeks we spin a wheel, we take that actor, we run with it, we watch their filmography, we rate them on a scale. It's very public, it's something that everyone gets to see and take part in, and that's all very intentional, right? We felt, because of the quarantine, it seemed like a better time than ever to give you all some more content. So the Munson's Choice episode is the concept of each one of us picks an actor from our list, 
and puts them onto the wheel and we spin the wheel of those five. So it's going to be someone who we love or someone that we find intriguing, right? Just because they're on the list doesn't mean we love them, but it's somebody that we find intriguing. So in this case, we threw it out there and said, hey, Munson's, who are you going to pick? I'll run through them real quick and give a quick description as to why you chose this person. So the first option was Ben Foster. The reason why I put Ben Foster on there is he was actually one of the motivating factors I had to joining this podcast is because I've always found him a super interesting actor. He always plays someone wildly intense and borderline or full on crazy. And he does a tremendous job every time, which makes me think in real life, it's probably not too much of a stretch for him. Every role I've seen him in, I have thoroughly enjoyed. So I would love to do a deeper dive in his career. The second option was Jessica Chastain, and that was my pick. I think she's one of the best actresses working today. Most of her roles are just really good, even if the movie's not that great. Third option was Kurt Russell. Who doesn't want to watch a Kurt Russell marathon while in the middle of a quarantine? Whether you're watching Big Trouble in Little China or the Tombstone or the Fast and the Furious, I mean, that, that guy hits them all. Throwing a little bit of curveball, and there was Kang Ho Song. He wasn't actually on the list, but uh, I know with uh, recent Parasite fame and then kind of going back into his uh, filmography, you got Snowpiercer and The Host. Uh, really like to investigate a little bit more about the foreign influence, uh, especially the Korean influence on uh, cinema today, because I know we have a lot of American remakes of classic Korean films. I agree. He's a super fascinating guy. I would love to dig into more of his films. And the, f- the fifth option on the wheel was Michael Shannon. And for similar reasons that James talked about with Ben Foster, I find Michael Shannon to be super interesting as well. He's He kind of has a similar character in his movies. He's always sort of the dark and disturbed guy, and you never really know what's going to happen to him in a movie. I thought it would be interesting to dive into his filmography as well for those reasons. Michael Shannon's been in some really good films and has done some great work. We took those five actor choices, Munson's favorites, spun the wheel. I got lucky this time because Jessica Chastain is what we picked. We geared up and we're delivering you a Munson's Choice episode based on Jessica Chastain. Um, There is a chance going in the future that we'll pop these in from time to time. But in in this particular instance, we're talking all things Chastain. So we're going to take this like any other episode. James, going to walk us through a little bit of actor trivia. What we do here is two truths and a lie. It's going to be two facts about Jessica Chastain. And you guys became a little hip to the uh, facts I was using for the last few episodes, um, in which all the lies were actually facts about Vin Diesel. So to throw you off my scent a little bit here, uh, I have no longer using Vin Diesel facts and will be using uh, a random actor or actress uh, as the third fact that you guys will have to try to figure out. So the first fact I have about Jessica Chastain is that she actually launched a disaster relief charity, reached out worldwide, that helps bring first responders to disaster areas to uh, augment local uh, relief efforts. She initially used her own money to send out a disaster relief team. Fact number two, after a year at community college, she dropped out in audition to, uh, for a scholarship at the prestigious Juilliard School in New York City. She actually received that scholarship, and that scholarship was funded by Robin Williams. And fact number three, uh, she is actually married to a real-life count of an Italian noble family. Count is an actual thing that exists. Two is the lie, James. Two is the uh, scholarship funded by Robin Williams to go to Julia. I'm tempted to say three, but I think it's one. I think that's the lie. One is the nonprofit. I think number one... 
Sounds more like a Brandy Chastain fact. <laughs> Jessica Chastain fact. U.S. women's soccer fame. I'm going to say number one as well. Well, gentlemen, I couldn't throw you off the scent. The fact that I read is uh, actually a Paul Walker fact. Yes. <laughs> Chastain herself is actually uh, super involved in nonprofits. She's on the board of one called We Do It Together, which aims to create opportunities for women in TV and film, uh, as well as a nonprofit called To Write Love on Her Arms, which helps deal with uh, depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. She's donated $2 million to the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, and as well as actively supports the Got Your Six campaign, which is uh, helps military veterans with issues like employment, health, housing, and education. Super involved in the nonprofit. However, that fact was a Paul, uh, Paul Walker fact, who, uh, before he passed, was also involved in the nonprofit. Um, she actually did attend community college, dropped out, and auditioned for Juilliard and received the Robin Williams scholarship. And uh, she is currently married to a count, which is nuts. Uh, I didn't know it was a real thing. Um, and I believe he, they met on the red carpet when in like 2011. Appreciate it, James. Case, tell us a little bit about Chastain's snapshot and box office history. She has a definite trend. I had to go 15 movies in before I could pick up the trend that, that you could use to describe her box office performance. That trend is the movies she is in, mo- more often than not, end up making the money that they're budgeting for these movies. However, they have atrocious openings. Okay, so Take Shelter, they budgeted $5 million dollars. Guess what was reported for the opening mount? Just anybody can take a guess. Guess how much was opening, like it ended up opening at? 30 grand. 450K. 250. $25. <laughs> you tried to win with Price is Right rules? Correct. <laughs> the winner is Ward. It opened at $52,000 as, as a feature film. Oof. With incredible critic and incredible audience um, responses, it, it was it was. I found that one very interesting. The other one that I thought was funny was the movie I reviewed, Stolen, did not do well in the critics' eyes. The budget for that movie was two million. Somebody take a guess on what it the budget or the ended up box office they reported total for that movie. Two hundred fifty k. Eighteen grand. I was going to say it made, it, mo- it made its money back, two mil. I'll say four million. The, the reported gross <laughs> of that movie is $8,000. <laughs> That's good budgeting, my friend. Holy <laughs> shit. That means like the people in the movie didn't even go see the movie. No. That's about it. You know, the, the other trend on hers, you know, all, the openings are low, but but she, the movies she's in always do really well. I think she's a talented actress. I think she works with talented directors, talented story writers. And, and, and once word gets out about the movies she's in, um, it usually ends up coming around. But that, that was really the, uh, the only standout stuff with the, with the box office performance of the movies she's in. Hey, Craig, what's her biggest grossing film? Her biggest grossing film is Dark Phoenix. Interstellar. And oh. no shit. Maybe The Martian? No, Interstellar. That makes sense. I was going to guess X Men. 
Yeah, that was 252. I was going to guess it was either Interstellar, Ocean, or Zero Dark Thirty. There's going to be one of the top three, probably. Z- Zero Dark Thirty um, only ended up at 93 million. Yeah, I don't think it did too well. Being rated R, it's kind of hard to make that up. Then narrows the window down a little bit. Okay. All right, beautiful. Okay, we're going to get into the Chastain career. Uh, Before we get to her first feature film, between 2004 and 2007, if you look at her filmography, she's got a variety of small TV spots, including her first role, first official role, at least listed online, was a one-episode spot on the show ER. Um, Based on what I read and saw in videos, um, it sounds like she busted her ass for quite a while to even get auditions. This woman has grinded it out to get to where she's at today, so a lot of respect for her there. Before we get into her first feature film, a little note that I, that I saw in YouTube videos as she talked a little bit about her career is that she claims her first film was Salome with Al Pacino, which Al Pacino found her and brought her into the project. But th- according to IMDb, that movie didn't hit until 2013. So I don't know mm-hmm. if it was just made super early before 2008 and it just took five years to make, kind of similar to Take Me Home Tonight with Chris Pratt. It took four years for that to finally hit theaters. That's just a little nugget. So Jessica, if you're listening, just know we did our research. We know what you say, but we're going to go with what Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb says, and that's Jolene is your first film, which is a wild ride that James is just overjoyed to tell us about. I had the pleasure of watching Jolene, and I'll give you a quick synopsis. Actually, that's a lie. I'm not going to give a quick synopsis. I'm going to give a very detailed breakdown of this absurd movie. So the movie is an adaptation from an acclaimed author by the name of E.L. Doctorow. Uh, It's a short story, actually, called Jolene Life. Jessica Chastain actually plays the title character of Jolene. Orphaned 15-year-old, which is initially pretty tough to believe because Chastain was 31 at the time of the filming. Who's free-spirit wanderer not content to call one place home uh, for any expanded stretch of time. And the movie actually takes place over the course of a decade, which at the end made sense why they would choose a 31-year-old for the role. But in the beginning, it was a little tough to follow. The story very much focuses on the, on the life of a woman who's been taken advantage of multiple times throughout her life and consistently finds herself in severely abusive relationships. Chastain anchors the film, no question. She kind of invokes this streetwise strong survivalist while still being able to display like the insecurity and the idealistic nature and kind of the fragility of believing in true love that leads her to get taken advantage of time and time again. The problem I have with this film though is threefold. Uh, The first one is, as I mentioned, it's based off of a short story and it very much plays out like it is unnecessarily vast and expansive where I'm assuming that it's different chapters in this story, their corresponding tones on film are super jarring. They might be better on paper, but on screen, it just doesn't work. Uh, it quickly cuts from, and I'm not making this up, it goes a countryside love story to a psych ward forbidden romance to a drug addict, passionate but abusive relationship to a mobster love story, which is by far her healthiest relationship. Ends in murder. Two of her lovers die in this movie. Uh, she gets married a third time, and the third time she gets married is an eccentric billionaire who's like disgustingly abusive towards her. It is an absurd amount of locations, tones, styles, and storylines crammed into one movie. Only reason it works is because of Chastain, and for her to be, for this to be her first movie, the amount of like 
strength she's able to portray in the character and wisdom that you see this character gain along the way. It was like a monumental task to even get this role, but the movie just didn't work. She's the only thing that actually keeps it kind of together. A uh, second problem I have with the movie is it's not that deep and it so desperately wants to be deep and it's just not. Her husbands and lovers die multiple times and it's more comical than it actually is moving. Uh, it's supposed to be a coming of age story, but it's I wish it was less expansive and focused more on the impact of each relationship as opposed to just cramming in all these stories because you just don't care. But the final issue I had with the movie is it becomes very clear that this story is about a woman who consistently gets into abusive relationships, but the story was written, produced, directed all by men because it turns into kind of sexual exploitation. Chastain mm-hmm. is stunning, right? She's a beautiful movie star. But in this movie, she is naked a lot. And it's the point where it is very gratuitous. Like there's a full three minute strips, uh, striptease scene, no dialogue. That made me like legitimately uncomfortable in my living room, like looking over my shoulder that like, hey, if my fiance walked in, like, how do I explain what I'm watching right now? Like, There's multiple rape and abuse scenes, not yeah. one, multiple, mm-hmm. uh, all of which are sexually explicit and teeter a little too close to some sort of abuse slash fantasy pornography. Mm-hmm. I think if a woman was involved in any aspect of the production of this movie, that the tone of these scenes or maybe the scenes entirely would have just been removed from the story altogether. Chastain in this role, especially for her first leading role, she carries the film. Um, it is no surprise that she skyrocketed to kind of movie star status shortly after this. I think people saw her talent, like immediate talent being wasted in a role like this. And that is why she got so many offers immediately from heavy hitters and like Al Pacino, like you were mentioning. Um, in that one movie that she claims is her first. For someone like herself, who's such an advocate for women's rights and is a feminist who helped launch like the Time's Up initiative, I bet she does not want this movie. I bet looking back, this movie is something she's like, ah, you know what? It was a good start to the career, but all things considered, probably not something I would do in the future. It creates such a weird experience as someone, like you're, you're watching this film, you know Chastain's 30, probably 30 when it's filmed, 29, 30, and she's playing a 15, 16, 17. And as you mentioned, James, the first two relationships she has are bonkers. One is her new uncle, and the other one is, you know, someone who works at the psych ward who essentially kidnaps her. And they're having these ridiculous sex scenes. And you're like, I feel really weird watching this because it's technically, according to the story, a child. And I, like this, it, something seems really off. Uh, and it's probably the statutory rape. The script in the movie set her up for for failure from the start. But I will say, to your point, James, there are times the emotion that she brings into the role. I'm like, holy shit, those are like snapshots that you see in some of her later roles that we're going to talk yep. about. Like, you, she's got this raw talent. And it makes sense. She started acting at 30. It wasn't like she was 18, 19 and trying to figure it out. There were parts when, no joke, this movie felt like the movie Boyhood by Richard Linklater. Mm-hmm. But instead of like every two years when the boy gets older, it's every single time she has sex with somebody, it like immediately cuts to the next like phase in her life where she's like on her own and she's like she's being forced to basically have sex across America to like have a life. Yeah. And then she, you know, she, she goes from like the South to uh, South Carolina and then she goes to Arizona and then she goes to Tulsa. Then she goes to Vegas. Yeah. 
it's ridiculous and it's like abusive relationships yeah, too. yeah so it's like it's not, not like some of it where you're like oh wow this is just like a gratuitous sex scene no it's like a violent gratuitous sex scene it was a bad movie and then Chaz Palmieri like you said that was her healthiest relationship this guy taking care of her giving her luxury everything she needs and obviously he ran into some bad deals but I, it turned into a movie I hated in the fifth one because clearly on their first date with this guy who is super – she doesn't know he's abusive, but, but he's this mogul rich guy that is also extremely Jesus-y and religious. And their entire conversation, he's coming off as a psycho, and she's very much responding like, you're an idiot. But then she's next, – the next scene, they're married, and they've yeah. got a child. I was like, all right, you're, you already had lost me, but you really lost me here because you're just trying to – another bad relationship on this woman and then it just shit gets worse from there there's there's no reason for anyone to go back and watch this movie um she was she was she is queer like it's queer for her first role like she has the talent because that was jumping off the screen but the movie's just like actually like a pain to watch that's how we start with jolene right and that's 2008 we then go to lowest critic score and that is the movie Stolen from 2009. And Case is going to talk to us about that one. Well, the critic score is zero. So buckle up, everybody. <laughs> Has anybody seen this movie? No. No. Negative. Uh, I don't like you guys right now. It doesn't take okay. a lot for me to not see a movie. But I assure you, anytime someone gets no good reviews, not a single positive, I'm usually out. I'm usually out on those. <laughs> I couldn't find it easily. So I didn't look hard. Everybody's instinct was accurate on this one. So I'm going to start out since the topic of this podcast is Jessica Chastain. She has a very minimal role in this movie. I'm about to go through some plot. I'll wrap it up with, with the parts that she was in there. All right. So the movie comes out in 2009 and uh, it stars John Hamm. Hamm plays a detective whose son is abducted during like a carnival or like a town fair. Him and his wife dealing with the loss, you know, the tragic loss of their child. So I, I'm actually interested in the movie right now because I, I feel like, all right, based on everything I've read, th this actually probably won't be as bad as I think it might. And then it flashes back to the middle of the 1950s to a guy named Matt Wakefield, who's played by Josh Lucas. Josh Lucas endures every kind of hardship that he can he loses his wife he's losing his job he's got family that won't like extended family that won't support him it's out of control so there's a lot of stuff going on with him he ends up having an affair with a married woman and while he's having an affair with this married woman his son is abducted they, they show a scene and they basically indicate that his son is dead and that somebody's burying his son at a construction site. Go back to the beginning of the movie where John Hamm is investigating the remains of this child because he thinks it might be his son. The plot thickens because there's a guy in prison who John Hamm is convinced abducted his son and killed his son. James Vanderbeek, James Vanderbeek, James Vanderbeek. <laughs> Thank God you paid attention because it is James <laughs> Vanderbeek. It's just out of control, right? At the end of the movie, John Hamm puts a bunch of stuff together and he realizes that not only did James Vanderbeek kill his son, he's also the one that killed James Vanderbeek. Not only does he play the young, normal version of himself, 
he plays an older version of himself in prison where despite the makeup and the prosthetics to look old, he sounds exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want your life. (laughs) Jessica Chastain, like I said, she's got a very minimal role. Her and Josh Lucas get together in that story arc after Josh Lucas loses his son. He goes to this diner that she works at. She's waiting on him. You know, they end up falling in love and they have a family. There's just very little that she can do with this movie based on the role she had. Unfortunately, her role, the writing and the scope of her character just wasn't anything to write home about. And you could have had a whole movie about her, Josh Lucas, and the aftermath of Lucas losing all his sons and then trying to start a family again with her. That's a movie I would watch, right? That is my uh, review of Stolen, you guys. We appreciate you, Craig. Before we get into high, highest critic score, and again, we like to paint a picture chronologically of, of the, our actors' careers. And in this case, a, a semi-big movie hit in 2010 called The Debt. I watched it years ago. It's got pretty decent reviews, so it's definitely not in the Jolene or Stolen category. So compared to those two, it in terms of quality of film, The Debt took it up a, a little bit of a notch. And then what you see in 2011 is when the bar really starts to raise with her career. And and that starts with the highest critic score, which is Take Shelter. That is the one I covered this week. And I will, I'll start with this. I had never heard of this movie. I know, Rigby, you had highly recommended it. It, yeah. it, was, a, it was a pleasure to watch. It was an absolute pleasure to watch. Um, I'm also, much like you, Mark, a big Michael Shannon fan. So seeing Chastain and Shannon in the same film, carrying the weight, um, it was awesome. It was really cool. So... Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, on IMDb, it has an 85 Metascore, 7.4 audience. Uh, or that's, yeah. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 92 and an 81, right? So well-liked by both critics and audiences alike. And I think that there's a reason for it. So the basic gist of Take Shelter, uh, Michael Shannon's character, um, it's p- Probably, and when I say probably, he's slowly drifting into schizophrenia like his mother. And uh, what happens is that he's trying to maintain his family and work relationships along the way, and he's struggling to do it. So uh, they have he and his wife, Jessica Chastain, um, who plays the wife in a lot of films as well as what I've noticed. Uh, yeah, she's going to play a wife, but she plays the wife. There's a big difference. They have a daughter who's deaf. Michael Shannon's character starts to get these apocalyptic visions that are pretty uh, dark, right? Of like murder, huge storms, like uh, just some really sick, nasty stuff. Um, And the first thing, as they start to come, he's not sure what to make of it. um, But he has one where his dog attacks his daughter. And so as a result, the first time he changes his life, he sets up. Uh, an outdoor kennel for his dog, who is normally an indoor dog, right? And Chastain's like, what the hell is going on? Why are you doing this? He's an indoor dog. And he, he won't tell her why. Just like, yeah, you know, I just have a hunch. Uh, I just feel like it's better for him outside. And so the as the movie goes on, he sees more visions. He starts changing more things. And the, the big part of the movie is he spends way too much money and time and energy uh, building a, a an extended storm shelter in the backyard because he thinks there's something huge coming and I need to make sure I'm protecting my family and we're prepared. And, ba- and out of it, he gets fired from his job because he's using equipment from his job that he's not supposed to. Um, his daughter's supposed to get uh, an ear implant surgery and she can't do that 
because he loses his health insurance when he gets fired. So basically all the pieces of this guy's life are crumbling because he can sense that this onset of schizophrenia is coming like his mother had, and he he is doing his best to avoid it, but he knows reality is probably going to kick in. So it's a story about mental health, ultimately. Um, the, the gist I can give on Chastain, and in the two guys, so Case and Rigby, you, you guys can chime in here, but I think what her role required in this film was simultaneously empathetic and a hard ass, right? Because she, despite seeing her husband lose it day after day, knowing kind of where this is going, and then dealing with the downfall of losing health insurance, your daughter not getting the surgery that she needs to have, and losing your job, and then potentially having to move and figure out life and you working again, because I think she's a seamstress or something like that. Um, she plays this character of empathetic towards him while also challenging him really damn well, right? Um, Huge jorts fan in the movie, wearing jorts constantly. Uh, <laughs> did notice that. Um, but uh, she was good, man. Michael Shannon was good. Uh, it's just a really good film that kind of leaves you guessing towards the end because you get towards the end and there's actually a big storm. And I love, I love what they did of they get stuck in the storm shelter. He's like, yeah, I told you. And after a while, they're like, hey, we should leave. And they have this really dramatic moment where they're like, open the door. And he's like, no, because he's worried that, you know, it's like, this is the end on the other side, right? There's there's demons and well, whoever knows what's going on. Um, and they have a really tense scene where he finally opens the door and everything's fine. And he realizes, oh shit, I am losing my mind. She was so good in that movie, in that role, that she got offered almost every supportive housewife script in Hollywood. Which goes into the, the concept of she plays the wife in a lot of her films, just pushing the shit out of her husband or boyfriend or partner, whatever it is. Who directed that? Jeff Nichols directed it. What else did he do? Well, he wrote the movie Mud. Love that movie. He did Mud, and he did Midnight Special. He did write Midnight Special as well, yeah. Midnight Special is phenomenal, too. Directing-wise, he directed Midnight Special and Mud, too. And he did Loving, which had um, Joel Edgerton. Uh, came out a few years ago. It was a pretty good movie, too. That was yeah, good. So he he wrote and directed those, which makes, I mean, especially Bud and Midnight Special, those were very, very similar, just four years apart in time. Yeah, Jeff Nichols, good director. He's got a good run there. Well, it'd be interesting yeah. to see what he comes out with next. Well, <laughs> we go from Take Shelter, which is this, her highest critic score, and then we go to Largest Critic Gap, a film that critics really enjoyed. The audience score didn't quite meet that, and it is... The Tree of Life, what many would refer to as Terrence Malick's masterpiece, which is a great lead-in to Rigby talking to us about the film. Oh, boy. This is probably going to be the beefiest chunk. I am the worst person to review this this movie. I'll just get it right out yeah, there. Yeah, dude, you struggled with Lego movies? <laughs> exactly. Fucking luck. <laughs> <laughs> the movie opens as like, you think it's like a period piece? You know, it's obviously this family that lives in the 50s. Then it's you see it's a flashback to Sean Penn's character. You realize is the main character of the movie, and you're seeing things through his lens, basically. Then it's a flashback to the creation of the universe, and it even features dinosaurs. There's a scene where a dinosaur looks like it's about to eat another dinosaur, and it realizes uh, compassion, and it decides not to eat the dinosaur. <laughs> that's the birth of consciousness, Rigby. It's the that's, birth that's of morality what and is. birth of compassion. I would never have guessed what that was about unless I had read some sort of, or I just 
listen to you, Kyle, who you you said that Water Movie was going on. I read but, it for somewhere else, so I didn't. Yeah, I'm the same way. It's one of those movies that you have to you have to first of all see more than once to really understand it, and B, you have to read to read people's think pieces about it, it for it to make sense. Um, the basic premise of the movie is that this main man played by Sean Penn is reflecting on his childhood. And I think struggling to figure out sort of what the meaning of his life and the events that happened leading up to that moment in his life. And again, this is probably so far from the what this movie was actually about. This is how I interpreted it. First part of the movie, you learn that Sean Penn's brother died when he was 19. And that portion of the movie is played out with Brad Pitt as Sean Penn's younger character's dad and Jessica Chastain as his mother. Jessica Chastain actually acts as sort of the de facto narrator in the movie, primarily through whispering, which bothered the fuck out of me. Um, <laughs> if you're going to have a narrator in a movie, don't freaking whisper. It's like, it bothered me so much. That death scene was the most, like, I, I after watching that, I was like, holy shit, maybe this was a decent movie because I was like, I get it. I get it up until this point because that's before the whole creation of man and all that right. like, fucking, like, Apple, yeah. you know, yeah, that's in the first bullshit. like 10 minutes. That's in the yeah. first like 10 minutes. But that's the thing. It's like when that happened. So the, the opening, the first part of the movie, you see through flashbacks and then you learn that Sean Penn's brother, who's J- Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt's son, died some way. You don't really find out how. He, d- he died when he was a teenager. And Sean Penn alludes to that in his future life when you're going back in, in that part portion of the movie. But you, I kind of thought that's what the movie would be about. And if that's what the movie would be about, like I, like you said, I would be sort of on board. That's not what the rest of the movie's about. This could have been a documentary on the Nature Channel or the Discovery Channel. Yes. They use a lot of a lot of shots of water, of trees, of nature, of skies, of leaves. Malik's cinematography is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's iconic the way he films. I mean, it's the same. It's like a Wes Anderson film. You know exactly when it's a Wes Anderson film. You know when it's a Malick film. I wouldn't necessarily know if it's a Malick film because it could be Planet Earth. <laughs> right. That's what it felt like almost. It was like the way they the way they zoom in on clear blue water and you know it's like it almost felt like I was watching a Nature Channel documentary. It really did. This movie probably would have been awesome to watch if I was high on drugs. Unfortunately, I don't take drugs, um, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably it probably would have helped me understand the movie a little bit better. Uh, I'll just get into Chastain's character. I don't really know what to even say about her character because she really – it's primarily her role is basically her whispering and her running around, chasing her kids, um, sort of setting the table, doing motherly things. She, her Her character, the way I took it, she represents this angelic, graceful, good side of humanity. And Brad Pitt, who's her husband in the movie, represents this sort of dark because he's authoritarian. He he's abusive. He he's not nice to the kids. He's not nice to her. What that has to do with the meaning of life, I don't know. That's just how I took those characters to represent one good versus evil, basically. Based on what I read, it's designed to demonstrate like Sean Penn's character is struggling because his parents raised him in, in just in two different ways. She's very religious. Mm-hmm. And he's wants to teach him how to fight and all this stuff. And so he's right. like struggling with the fact his parents were so diametrically opposite in how they raised him. I get that, but I also don't I don't really know. I, I just got lost in flashbacks <laughs> and stuff. I did. I just got completely lost. It sounds like you uh you voted very much on the side of the audience gap. Absolutely. 
just a few last things to sum up this movie. Um, I read that this won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 2011. During the award ceremony, it got a st- the, the the descriptions of the articles I read was that it got a mix of a standing ovation and booze, which sums up this movie perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was possible to get standing ovation and booze, but it won. And I think critics like it because it is super. I I used the word ambitious when I was texting you guys. People called it that. It has like a 2001 A Space Odyssey feel to it. There are so many shots in it with like the planets and, and, you know, animals and stuff that reminded me of 2001. Just, it has that feel to it. And the music too, the music. He pulled that guy who did 2001 Space Odyssey out of retirement to do this film. It's the same, like the, 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 like the organs going on in the background, the music, it's like, it has that same feel to it. It's, it's a two hour and 15 minute movie. If you don't watch the director's cut, and if you take <laughs> if you take out, no, no, it's, it's a three hour and six yeah. minute movie. If you watch the director's cut, yep. uh, wow. if you take out the nature bullshit and just like nature scenes, it's like an hour and 40 minute movie. No, I agree. I, I could honestly watch this movie 50 times and still not be able to tell you what it means in a coherent way. The last thing I'll say about Chastain, she obviously, I think she was very proud to be in this movie because she really admires Terrence Malick and obviously like working with Brad Pitt. I've never understood the fascination with Terrence Malick. A Badlands is whatever. Thin Red Line is whatever. I don't. I saw A Hidden Life last year and it was long, but it was actually a, a pretty decent story. I just don't, I just can't appreciate the movie, unfortunately. Chastain... She really liked being a part of it. She said that, and this is the last thing I'll say about it. She said she's only seen it once, and that was at the premiere, and because she can't rewatch it because it's too emotional for her. It just shows how emotionally involved she was in this role. She says that you know, watching her run around with the kids would. She had so much. I think she said she had so much fun, and so much. She invested so much in it that she just gets too emotional to rewatch it. So I'd fall on the audience side. I would not give it a 90 or whatever it is on Rotten Tomatoes right now. That's for sure. Yeah. I'd probably fall towards the 60 area just cause it is an ambitious project, but it's just a hard film to follow. It's intentionally hard to follow. I wrote a couple things down about it as well. And I would definitely fall on the audience side, uh, probably lower. Um, I wrote instead of calling it the tree of life, you, you should call it daddy issues and D minor. <laughs> <laughs> the first, the first normal conversation in the movie they're sitting down at a dinner table happens 50 minutes into the movie. Oh boy. The movie is a ton. Of, it's like bits and pieces from commercials of life insurance or Cialis with biblical <laughs> verses whispered over it. But I will say Jessica is timeless. You know, she, she's plays a role where she like, especially in the fifties, you know, no makeup, you know, she's a, a stay at home mom, like all this stuff. She cares for the kids. She doesn't have any makeup on. There's none of that like dolled up aspect to her. And she is still just like this like picturesque mom for the time. And she does a really good job with the kids. And believe it or not, one of the kids is Ty Sheridan from from Mud, from Ready Player One, from you know, X-Men. I literally was sitting there with Kelsey and I was like, wait, wait, wait. I went on IMDB. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the dude from Ready Player One. When I looked at it, I was like, holy shit, is that, is that, it was either Ty Sheridan or Barry Kagan. And I was like, no, that's gotta be Ty Sheridan because he's, he's, uh, American and, you know, being at that, you know, at a young age to be over in America at that time, he would have been the one drawn from it. And yeah, it, w- it sure as enough was him. But also what was really impressive while, uh, Malik did direct it, the DP 
was Emmanuel Lebeski, who did Trio Life. He did Gravity. He did Birdman. He did The Revenant. Jesus. Like, the guy killed it. Absolutely killed it. And out of all those, The Tree of Life is his worst movie. And Which is wild. One, yeah, that is absolutely it, crazy. Because it's on all these major lists, right? It's number 79 on this one list of the movies you have to see before you die. The one Stephen, what is it? Stephen Schneider is 1,001 movies to see before you die. It's yeah. on there. So, like, it's because it's so ambitious, not because it's a great story. Right. But, but people are like, it's this contemplation of existence and life. And even Sean Penn was like, I think my character in presence was pointless because apparently they had enough film of just him they could have made their own movie with sean penn multiple hours of filming but malik just put in little bits on the front end that's it dude no joke the the five minutes in the movie he was in a bunch of the scenes were in downtown houston in the office building that i used to work at it's wild however my knowledge of like houston they filmed eight different locations to show him in the same building and then they threw in locations. It was, it was a scene where he's going up in an elevator. They showed him going up in a glass elevator in a different building than the office building. They showed him going up, up that elevator across the street from a building in Dallas. Like the guy, he, no joke, he spent more money just capturing film from eight locations than most, than absolutely what Stolen pulled in in its first, first weekend. I read his directions, Malik's directions that he would give to, uh, to different theaters for how to like produce his, how to show his film. And he gave literally step by step instructions of what you need to do to make sure that people are watching my film in the best possible scenario. Like this, so the guy's he's very much about the form. That is the tree of life. Thank you, Rigby. That's 2011, right? Uh, there's still a few films in 2011, and what we really see over the next five years is her career blows up. I don't know how she slept. She was in, depending on if you count the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby as one or three films, because there's three different versions. Um, she was between in between 14 and 16 films over a five year period, which is insane. When I read that, I was blown away. Yeah. What do those take, like three to six months to film? Like, there's no downtime. Dude, she, I don't know how she slept. She was probably, her character in Miss Sloan is like how she lived at that point in time. Just like staying up for 16 hours. Or like Zero Dark Thirty, right? Just obsessed with, obsessed with killing terrorists. So this is what I want to do in this section, because I've got all those movies listed, and there's some really good ones in there, so I want to real quick popcorn through them chronologically and I'll mention it. You guys pop in if you've got a few thoughts and I'll start with Coriolinus, which I knew nothing about. Um, I learned that uh, Jessica Chastain's favorite actor is Ralph Fiennes and he directed this film, which is essentially a modern retelling of this Roman story. And the movie's freaking badass, man. And she is, she's awesome in it. She's just really good. She plays the wife of Ralph Fiennes, which has got to be weird for her because that's her favorite actor. Because her favorite movie is The English Patient. When she goes from you know, being nominated for a major award for The Help, which is kind of one of those pinnacles of her career, she goes to Texas Killing Fields, same year. She plays basically a detective, Sam Worthington's ex-wife, in a very mediocre film. I don't think there's much to tell there, but she does pretty well, given the script that she's given. You know, Lawless 2012 hits, um, 
we got Tom Hardy, you've got a Shia LaBeau, a movie I think was pretty popular. Um, and again, I think she nailed the role, right? I don't know if any of you agree or disagree with me on that front. I agree. She, she's very like, that's who she is. She is the female, the strong female, but like the quiet supporter, you know, that, that role. Yep. Color of time. 2012 is basically the knockoff version of a Malick film with James Franco. It's not a good movie. She is a very limited role. I think I read that it took a day for her to film her shots in that. So very, very limited. But then Zero Dark Thirty happens, 2012, which she won a Golden Globe for for Best Actress. Boys, you could say this is probably the what her best performance, if not top two, top three. Definitely. I believe she was nominated for an Academy Award yes, for this as well. It's it's her best performance, I think, by far. I recently rewatched it, and there's a scene where she is essentially like dressing down the head of the CIA department that's looking for Osama bin Laden, and he's mentioning how they've done all these failed missions for the last ten years, and the way she just like holds court right there and screams at him, it gave me chills. It you know the, the amount of emotion she was able to put in there and the. I don't give a fuck what you're threatening me with kind of attitude while still showing the passion to hunt Osama bin Laden. It was, it was pretty moving. She's like the person who's like, I'm the guy who's doing her fucking job. Who the fuck are you? Right. Exactly. She's fantastic in it. I remember watching it in theaters and not knowing who she was, but being absolutely blown away by her, her acting in it. I think that was the game changer for her. She had done some really good work. Obviously, she was nominated for the help, but Zero Dark Thirty being a lead role really just changed the game for her, right? Just took her to that upper echelon. So 2013 hits. We've got Mama and Salome. I haven't seen either of those two. I don't know if you guys have. I saw Mama. She had really dark, short hair, and I didn't know it was her until an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. Is that good or bad? Uh, it wasn't a, It wasn't a bad movie. I mean, kind of in the same vein as like the the scary movies like the ring and all that shit but she did a really good job she took that movie to help combat being typecasted it, it's definitely a departure from the same types of roles she was she was uh filling in she's got two back-to-back stage plays in salome turned into a film and then miss julie which is another stage play that's been turned into a film i watched that i couldn't finish it because i was so goddamn bored uh she's good <laughs> in it there's only three actors in the entire film, maybe four if you count a side story. It's her, Colin Farrell, and literally turned it. I fast-forwarded the end just so I could see the end and say I saw the end. But then we get into the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which was shown at TIFF. There's a him, a her, and a them version. Kind of runs from her problems after their son dies. But then we hit Interstellar 2014. Huge movie, as we said earlier. It's her, her biggest box office success. right, Boys, what are your thoughts on her and Interstellar? I think she's a part of the the most emotional scene of like any movie within like three years of that. The when she reaches out to McConaughey when she's grown up and he's looking at her now being an older person than she's older than he is. That's that's terrible. Like that's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Yeah. That was the one thing I was going to say is like I haven't cried at a movie in a long time and that exact scene that you just mentioned was because i'm a huge christopher nolan fan and i thought the movie was good not great on some right. of the christopher nolan movies i've seen but that scene crushed me. yeah and i'm sitting there in theater with tears streaming down my face i'm like oh this is tough i agree and it, it definitely stemmed like one of the best gifts even though it's a really emotional a emotional moment 
of Matthew McConaughey crying to himself, sending yeah. that to friends and being like, right. <laughs> yeah, you've that sent that was... to me many times. Yeah. <laughs> In the initial story, uh, it's a father son relationship and Christopher Nolan changed it to a father daughter relationship. And after that, she started reading a lot of scripts, trying to see if she could actually take a, a male role and turn Damn. it into a female character. That's that makes a lot of sense, especially for that role, because that connection between dad and daughter, I, I think that that is that emotional level a little bit more. Um, I, I think she she fucking nailed it. And so did so did uh, McConaughey. We hit three other major roles, a most violent year, which some of us are huge fans of. Some of us, maybe expectations weren't there, but there are some pretty iconic scenes of her there. The role demanded a hard ass of a wife who's pushing her husband, and she does well with it, right? She's in Mm -hmm. The Martian. Yep, she's one of the commanders there, again. And Crimson Peak in 2015, I do know she learned to play the piano for it, and all the songs are her playing the piano. In that time frame, we just went through 2011 to 2016. That is two Academy Award nominations, and she was actually named one of the most influential people in the world, uh, by Time Magazine. So that is a rocket ship to start up in a five-year span. I believe she was also named like sexiest woman in the world, or just you're right, rock, just skyrocket to start up. I mean, Interstellar and Mar- The Martian were like the two big space movies during the time, and she was in both of them, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's a huge deal. So we get to 2016. And we hit our last category, and that's largest audience gap. So audiences liked it, critics maybe not so much. And there's two films here that fall under that. That's The Huntsman Winner's War from 2016 and X-Men Dark Phoenix. And Warren, uh, two weeks and I guess two episodes in a row, gets to cover multiple films here. With the X-Men, that one was really the biggest gap. Uh, it was about a gap of like 45. Whoa. Critics gave it like an 18 in the the fan base gave it like a 60 so the movie itself it's just it's really not that good it's i'm, I'm tired of them you know especially compared to the other marvel movies um once once they finally are forfeiting the the rights uh to the marvel stuff the, those movies will be remade again and will be considerably better so you know it, it's gonna get it's gonna get better but uh Jessica plays a really minimal role, surprisingly. Actually, in the movie, she's this kind of shape-shifting race of uh, aliens that the, the X-Men traditionally fight. They t- she takes over, like, the, the alien takes over Jessica Chastain's body. She kills a bunch of people, and then it's her basically fighting. So if you turn, it's really anticlimactic. Um, it, it's just not that good. So I spent a little bit more time on the Huntsman Winner's War. It's actually got a really good cast for such an average movie. Jessica Chastain, Chris Hemsworth, Emily Blunt, Charlize Theron, Nick Frost, and narrated by Lamney. That's a lot of cheddar to be thrown out at some people. I get why audiences enjoy it. It's it's simple. It's easy to follow. There's nothing super special about it. Characters provide plenty of exposition to make it easy for the typical months to understand what's happening. <laughs> It's a good movie for like an international flight. If you if you fall asleep for a bit and wake up, you're not going to miss anything. Uh, when you're enjoying the free booze at thirty five thousand, you'll be entertained enough. Um, <laughs> this this one had a gap at maybe like thirty. I think the audience was at forty five, and I'm I'm right about the like thirty five to maybe forty. So definitely closer to the audience. I think that the critic was about fifteen. 
Damn. Um, I went in with no expectations because it's still a competent movie, but I didn't really see a reason to hate on it. But I spent the entire movie trying to decide whether or not I'd seen it before. And I, I still, like, at the end of the movie, I still can't tell whether or not I had. <laughs> uh, so I, I remember watching Snow White and the Hunts, and maybe they just get really blurred together that I can't really tell the difference. But, you know, whatever. This might have been a movie where I saw 35,000 feet just cruising, drinking free booze. Um, it, it, it's, it's very basic. You know, love, love conquers all. Yeah, that's basically the gist of it. You know, boo-hoo. Um, it, it's one of those funny movies though. The one, my one like big takeaway, and this is, I think the second time I made comment of this is a puzzling decision for directors to like choose accents for characters. Uh, Hemsworth is Australian and he can play like the British accent really easily. Chastain's American and they both do Irish accents in the movie. So <laughs> oh boy. instead of just having and everybody else in the fucking movie is British. Emily Blunt is British. Charlie's Theron, South African, might as well be British. Nick Frost is British. So instead of changing one, they change both of those two characters to play something completely different. And nobody else has an Irish accent. So that was that was the one thing that I liked. I enjoyed laughing at, but uh, I'll admit Chastain fucking nails it. She, I think they looked at her and she was like, oh, there's no such thing as redheaded Brit. They're all Irish. And yeah, like, right. Oh, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous. <laughs> area, but, it's right on par. Know. So, yeah, that's it. I'm with you, Warren. I saw it and I couldn't remember if I've seen it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I actually have seen it and it's not memorable. All right. Well, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. We've spent a lot of time talking about her roles and that's because she's pretty damn good in a lot of them. And it's hard to skip over a lot of the roles because it helps frame kind of her career, right? Um, 2016 to 2019, you see Miss Sloan, which may be her second best role. Um, yeah, it's tremendous. In terms of just being a fucking hard, I watched the other night and I was, man, she's good at that role. That lobbyist, just ruthless. If you haven't seen it, you would love this game as well. It's a very similar character where it is intense, uptight, keeping it moving a hundred uh, miles a minute. Um, it was very good. Yeah, which is a great transition because 2017 comes, Molly's Game hits. I have seen it. Loved her in that too. Really enjoyed that movie. We see the zookeeper's wife. <laughs> she has a German accent in that one. Another big one there. Woman Walks Ahead. Um, and then It Chapter 2. So she took 2018 off, and then she was the uh, the adult version in It Chapter 2. Um, any thoughts on any? I guess this kind of takes us to the end of uh, our discussion of, of of Jessica Chastain. Any other comments on some of those roles we've mentioned? Things we haven't, any rocks we haven't unturned? I was going to say, I think Molly's game is a perfect kind of uh, culmination of all the roles that she's played here because it was like unapologetically sexy, but very in your face, very smart, very aggressive. She was the smartest person in the, in the entire time. I, I love that movie too. In, uh, in it chapter two, um, her character is a one note character and that's a, that's a Stephen King special. Once he stops writing about children's perspectives and gets to adults perspectives, it's like, look, she's the abused girl. Get it. And I was like, yes, we get it. Like you're really driving this point home, but she was good in that role. And she's played, uh, you know, from someone who watched, uh, was it Jolene, you know, she's played someone who's been abused before and she's very good at showing kind of the uh, fragility of that to pick an older Sophia Lowe. Jessica Chastain was a great pick. It's hard to find a, a role she's had where she's been bad. Where you're like, ah, oh, that's a miss. Right? It's just hard. 
Are you guys familiar with the Bechdel test? Yes. Is that a I cheese? Am. Or like a salt? <laughs> it, it's, it's not a cheese. So what the Bechdel test does is it, uh, there's, there's two frogs. Does the film have two named female characters? And are there two scenes in which the female characters talk about something other than the male characters in the movie? It, if it can pass that test, then it then it passes the Bechdel test, and and very few movies in Hollywood do. And when she's reading scripts, she she likes to apply that. And um, you know, I would imagine the ones that pass that test certainly climb up the ranks for her. And the ones that don't, you know, she's still interested in, and she still does movies like that. But it certainly helps her make decisions. And then the interesting thing that I found out too is that uh, movies that do pass that test tend to be more financially successful in the box office. Per usual, I bring in a top 10 performances uh, this time. You know me with the reputable sources. Bringing this one in from footandfriendsonfilm.com, <laughs> which is just another website that does movie reviews. You need a subscription for that or what? You know, I've been using discretionary funds for it. So we've dug deep into our filmography, so we're not going to rehash the top 10, but the top three on this list are Zero Dark Thirty, Miss Sloan, and The Help. Any vehement disagreement with those top three? Vehement? No, I would say I would put Molly's Game in there in replace of The Help. Again, I haven't seen it, but I have seen Molly's Game, and it was fantastic. I know she was nominated for an Academy Award for The Help, but Molly's Game, I felt like, was a perfect kind of culmination of her skills and talents. I would agree with that. I, would, I haven't seen Mrs. Sloan, but um, if I had a choice if i had a choice of the three movies that i that i like her the best in molly's game would definitely be up there for me yeah same here all right we have finally reached the end with the end comes our scoring system so we evaluate every actor on the munson meter which uh, uses the same criteria every week so we look at longevity how long they've been in the game how consistent have they been what's their pop culture impact how much range do they have as an actor what are they hitting different types of roles um, what's their awards footprint look like, right? Are they nominated? Are they winning? Are they not getting anything? Are they getting generation awards from MTV? Whatever it happens to be. What other talents do they have? Do they write, produce, sing? And finally, what's their personal life like? Are they a champion of amazing causes? Are they doing great things for the community? Are they degenerate or anywhere in between? So with that, we rate them on a scale of 1 to 100. And uh, we average that out for final score. So we're going to go ahead and jump to Case uh, to give his score. We'll start there. My favorite aspect of her is that I feel like she exudes confidence better than any other actor that certainly that we've looked at. Um, and then she has a great ability to shift from, you know, uh, I've got my shit together mode to absolute vulnerability. Technically speaking, I, I think she's the best actress that we've looked at. You know, and because of her passion and intensity and, and all those little attention to details that she brings to her roles. And she's easily going to end up one of the best performers, male or female. So with that said, I'm going to give her a score of 78. All right. Beautiful. Warren. I didn't know anything about the Bechtel test. And obviously, I was mistaking it for a bechamel, which is uh, the that was the culinary term that I was thinking of. <laughs> You know, all, all uh, culinary aspects aside, I think that Jessica is, I mean, she's very good at what she does. She's, like you said, very technical in her approach, methodical, you know, something that we haven't seen out of uh, the other actors that we've reviewed. My, uh, my drawbacks, you know, because I, I think her, uh, her personal life is great. Her causes and 
you know, everything that she uh, donates money to, she represents, she does an incredible job with all that. I just, I need to see more diversity from roles. I would love to see her like step out of her comfort zone and like try comedy. I feel like I've only seen her smile like twice in movies. Both times were like not really the right time to smile, but it was kind of like just more of like a sigh of relief, like smile, like I'm, I'm done. So I'd really like to see more. I think in the next like 10 or 15 years, she, she really could just be like the most well-rounded uh, actor in, in Hollywood. And so uh, I think with uh, new roles coming out, I definitely want to see that diversity a little bit. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably be one of the lower raters of her this time around, but I'm going to give her a 71. I think also the roles that she's been in, I, I need. she's been nominated for awards, but hasn't really won enough of them and so i think once she gets a few more uh on her belt she'll be up there with the best james she consistently brings intensity she plays a strong tough female lead but she's also uh sensual delicate unapologetically sexy uh she always gives the viewer someone who can, you can root for and you know she's just a full-blown movie star what i would take away from her in her career wise at this point is She's maybe been in the game like a little over 10 years. So I want to see the longevity, right? So far, I mean, rocket ship to stardom. We'll see. It. Can you withstand that over the course of 20, 30, 40 years? Um, if she had won one of those Academy Awards, I would easily have her ranked as the uh, highest ranking that we've got so far. On a personal side, uh, she is not one of those celebrities that just talks the talk, but she actually walks the walk when it comes to causes she believes in. And she is super involved in the nonprofit industry and that speaks closely to my heart. So I respect her for that. And also she's married to a nice Italian boy and that's also speaking close to my heart. So for that, I give her a 82. All right, Rigby. I'm going to give her an 83. She's obviously incredibly talented. As James sort of mentioned, she sort of jumps out of the screen in every movie she's in and every role she plays. Um, she always kind of has an intriguing character that you sort of root for and, and you want to see on screen almost as much as possible uh, when you're watching the movie. Um, I guess the one area where I think she could improve is, like Warren said, her range of roles. I would love to see her do some comedy, but um, I also don't really know if that's something that she's even interested in. So that's just me sort of spitballing. Great actress, extremely talented. And like I said, you sort of remember her character in every movie she plays. So I'll go 83. And she seems like, one thing I didn't mention, she seems like, if you look at her tweets, if you look at her social media, you know, some comments she's given in interviews, she seems like a person with a lot of grace and a lot and a good heart. And it's nice. It's always nice to see that in Hollywood. And I'll jump in last here, fully recognizing that of the Munson's choice options, she was mine. I already come in with a little bit of a bias of, I love her work. I think she's a phenomenal actress. So trying to be as objective as possible as I go through this. Uh, she stands out to me for a, for a few reasons. Number one, and I think this is a good example, uh, in 2013, when Mama and Zero Dark Thirty were both in theaters, they were one-two at the box office, and she was a leading actress in both of those movies. She's the first woman in 50 years to do that in Hollywood, Damn. which I think is testament to the quality of her performances and also some of the box office success of the of the movies that she's taken on. Also of note that for a lot of these roles, she goes that extra step to do what she needs to do to make it authentic. So uh, she learned German and Krav Maga for the debt. I mentioned she learned uh, sign language for Take Shelter. She learned the piano and played all the songs in Crimson Peak. And she plays the ukulele. So she's an interesting human and certainly has the ability to take on new talents uh, when she takes on a role. 
And I think to some of your points, she clearly has a lane. When I look at her top 10 films from foot and friends on film.com, uh, they're all dramas, right? Like every single one of them, it's a drama. She's done a few other pieces. She did a, you know, Crimson Peak, which is definitely a little bit of a departure. Mama sounds like more of a horror film. So it sounds like she's trying to stretch into some other genres, but she is definitely drama, right? So um, with all that said, I'm going to give her uh, the same number Rigby gave her, and that's an 83. So Warren, what does that bring us from an overall average? That puts Jessica Chastain at a 79.4, and she is just behind John Lithgow. And just ahead of Chris Pratt. Which feels right. Before we wrap this thing up, Warren, can you tell us, our audience, a little bit about some of the projects that are coming around the bend? A movie that's uh, production is completed, supposed to be out in 2020. Uh, I don't really know what uh, is going to happen with COVID-19 and all the delays. Uh, Probably a safe bet is that it gets pushed back to 2021 release. But the movie called Ava, directed by Tate Taylor, Seems to be more of a, an action movie uh, where she plays a deadly assassin. It's got Gina Davis, Colin Farrell in it. That'll be interesting. And then The Eyes of Tammy Faye, directed by Michael Showalter. It's supposed to be in 2020, uh, 2020 as well, probably 2021 now. Uh, Jessica Chastain plays Tammy Faye. Should be really, really interesting to see how that goes. Vincent D'Onofrio and Andrew Garfield in it as well. And she's got five other movies in pre-production, so we're going to see a lot of Jessica Chastain over the next two to three years. Our next podcast is going to drop on April 9th. Um, the wheel will decide who that will wheel be. Decides. Wheel, wheel decides. decides. That episode will drop. We may or may not drop another Munson's Choice at some point, depending how long the quarantine goes. So just trying to keep you all on your toes. But if you've made it this far, we appreciate you listening in. Hope you learned a lot about Jessica Chastain. Hopefully you're intrigued to watch some of her films either the previous ones or the ones that are coming around the bend as always you can find us on twitter at munson's at movies we're on instagram at munson's at the movies you can email us munson's at the movies at gmail.com if you have ideas for segments you have actors you'd love us to cover look out for us i know we're gonna be popping a lot of content on social media any final thoughts from the munson's before we wrap this thing up don't go outside this is not a, a hoax it's very real it's very real Keep washing your hands. Stay safe. I would say uh, definitely maintain the the social distancing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be social with us on uh, on Twitter uh, and uh, Instagram. We had a lot of great interactions with people today. People just you know liking stuff, retweeting. Uh, we really loved all the interactions. So the more love we get, the the more content we're we're willing to chug out. So all right, Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity.